okay, so I screwed up last week, but we are back here again, so everyone can calm down. Connie, you, uh, you done fucked up, as they say. Oh, yeah, I genuinely thought that, I mean, I don't know how many, this is like, what, like, episode, supposed to be episode 34? Um, Should have been 34, but now it's 33 again. But, okay, but, like, when you've done this 30 times, you think that you've done it, but maybe I was just imagining that I had done it last week when I sent it over to you, and I was like, oh, I don't need this file anymore, so I just got rid of it. Just gone. And now, no one will know about the incredible thing that you revealed to us in that episode. I know, the big secret that I've been saving for episode 33. um, Right? Wasted. Like, our friendship led up to that moment. And then I just let it go because I hit delete. I thought the part where you broke down into tears was a beautiful moment of not just friendship between us, but just the embodiment of humanity and and good in the world. And it's a shame that our listeners will never get to hear that now. Yeah, and I also really appreciated that uh, when you sang that song Mm -hmm. in Finnish because you've been taking classes. Mm -hmm. While doing Um, a De Niro impersonation, that was the real kicker in my mind. Yeah, And so now no one's going to hear it because obviously that you can't replicate that. It was a once in a lifetime thing. And I'm sorry everybody missed out on this. It was, look, I'm just going to be blunt. It was easily our best episode ever. And uh, we're all downhill from here, so... Not- I let it go. Yep. I let it go. We're, we're never going to recover. Uh, I think that one episode was our chance to make it big, and instead we're going to be stuck in podcast mediocrity. So uh, with that being said, welcome to Couch Crusaders. Uh, I'm <laughs> Tyler Loops. that's Connie Yan, and uh, I think really all you missed last week was me ranting about Leonardo DiCaprio, so nothing too new. It was a good rant. Thanks. I had been saving it up for a while, and I'm not quite angry enough right now to let myself go again, but give it a couple weeks, and I'm sure I'll be able to give a scathing review of Leonardo DiCaprio's acting capabilities once more. Uh, Connie, how's your week been? It's been good. Um, I, you know, I mean, maybe it was good that we recorded today on a uh, Wednesday. Today, Tuesday. Tuesday. Yeah. today on a Tuesday, because major movie announcement... JJ's back for Star Wars 9. I know, I'm really excited about this, actually. Uh, and it, it did feel kind of like fate that not only did we forget to record an episode last week and then delayed this recording until Tuesday, uh, but, you know, we saved it for, for the day that they announced the new director for episode 9. And I think we've touched on it before that Colin Trevorrow got dropped from Star Wars. Uh, and we'll go into that a little bit more later but he's uh not a very great director known mostly for jurassic world and recently uh book of henry which was a huge flop but jj abrams signed back on he's the director of episode seven obviously as well as many other acclaimed blockbusters cloverfield star trek series uh he's great and I'm pretty pumped about it. I think it's about as good of a hire as you can get. I would have liked to see Ryan Johnson come back, but I think asking somebody to do Star Wars movies for seven, eight, seven or eight years of their life is uh, a lot to ask of any one person. So it's nice that J.J. was able to start this franchise, uh, have Ryan come in and do the second episode while J.J. takes a little bit of a break, and come back in and finish it off. It keeps the storylines, I feel like, a little more cohesive with just two creative talents working uh, behind the scenes here. So I think we know what we're going to get stylistically out of the new Star Wars movie now, but uh, it it gives me a lot of promise for the quality of the storytelling. So what's going to happen when this trilogy closes out? Do we just start over with new characters? 
10, 11, 12? Uh, you know what? There's been a lot of debate about that, and the kind of controversy is the Star Wars trilogies have always revolved around the Skywalker family. Uh, it, there, there has never been a Star Wars trilogy that doesn't have to do with the Skywalkers in some regard, and people are wondering if after Episode Nine ends, they're going to you know, completely go somewhere else with the Star Wars universe and create a new story, or if they'll find some new way to connect it into the Skywalker family. So it, it's too early to say at this point, considering we don't even know where this trilogy is really going yet. You know, we've, we've got one introductory movie where we met all the new characters and kind of got a, a idea of the conflict that's going on, but we don't have a lot of a story arc built yet because we're only a third of the way through the story. So uh, I'll let this one play out before I speculate what's going to happen in episodes 10, 11, and 12. But what we do know is going to happen is that there will be lens flares, baby. There will be there, there will be lens flares, and uh, look, of course, JJ gets shit for his lens flares, but uh, they weren't. I like him. They weren't super noticeable in the Force Awakens. Uh, you know, that's just kind of a meme at this point that uh, I think he really solidified with uh, Star Trek because he definitely did lens flare a lot in those. But he said he learned his lesson, and it was less <laughs> apparent in uh, in Star Wars Episode Seven. So. I doubt we'll see too many of them, but we'll definitely get a lens flare or two. I'm a fan. Yeah, and... Speaking of... Oh, yeah, go on. I was just going to say, uh, my favorite thing about J.J. Abrams is uh, he he has a whole system for telling stories called the Mystery Box, which we talked about briefly earlier, and uh, it's basically his way of unpacking a story that is a very audience-centric way of storytelling it really takes in consideration the audience's perspective and how viewers are interacting with the film and it's what's made his movies pretty commercially successful for the most part and uh, i feel like it's that kind of blockbuster focus that uh, translates really well to a big franchise like star wars so yay as uh, as somebody told me today yay 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 brums <laughs> who told you that that's amazing <laughs> it was ari thank you she thought it was terrible but i laughed a lot <laughs> That's pretty good. Way to go, Ari. Um, that's pretty good. Uh, anyway, speaking of directors that actually have talent. So not speaking of Colin Trevorrow. No, not speaking of oh, okay. young Steven Spielberg, as we were touting him as for some reason. Um, I did give a wonderful indie update. <coughs> a wonderful update on the indie filmscape last week but then i fucked up as everyone knows lost to the ages yeah. as you publicized so publicly i literally checked my phone turned like went on facebook and logged off so i was like <laughs> screw this kid well, he's ruined my life well look i had to post something because i kept getting notifications like your page has been viewed four times in the last day and i'm like oh people are wondering if they missed an episode or not so i uh yeah I had to I had to say something for the good of the listeners. Whatever. <laughs> um Ah, okay, so we okay, so okay, yes. We are going into mid September and so last week I did give a recap or an update on the Venice and Telluride film festivals. Um but now that that's over because I fucked up, we're well into TIFF, which is the Toronto International Film Festival. Um, and there have been some pretty awesome movies, um, that are stirring the awards chatter again. Um, 
However, there's not really, apparently there's not really one single film like a La La Land or a Moonlight that was absolutely like a, um, like a no-brainer for awards season. However, some notable films include, um, The Shape, Guillermo del Toro's The Shape of Water, which won at the Venice Film Festival. Basically, uh, a deaf Sally Hawkins gets it on with a fish dude. It's very del Toro, uh. Basically, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm putting it crudely to try to be funny, but I'm sure it's very beautiful. Oh, that's not what I meant. I just meant that Del, Del Toro has a weird thing for people having relationships with monster creatures, so it's very Del Toro. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there is Suburbicon, George Clooney's Suburbicon, written by the Coen brothers, um, which is not really getting too many favorable reviews. I heard it's because they kind of have two parallel storylines, one involving um, uh, incident in which, like, a new black family moved into a white suburbs, and the hoopla around that, compared to uh, Matt Damon's wife mysteriously gets kidnapped, and Matt Damon's on, like, a revenge plot. I don't know. Basically, the two line, the two plot lines did not mesh very well. I'm sure that the Coen brothers did not... What happened was the Coen brothers only wrote about the Matt Damon wife storyline and not about this um, racism angle, and that was thrown in, I guess, for awards appeal. Yikes. Um... Yeah, but uh, we'll get into the Coen brothers later because of the movie that I saw. Right. Um, and then finally, I would like to mention um, the disaster yes, artist. Yes, that's what I was going to bring up. The trailer dropped today, and it is fucking hilarious. Even if you've never seen Tommy Wiseau's The Room, uh, the disaster artist is the James Franco directed and starred... Um, film that recaps how Tommy and Greg Sestero's best friend uh, were struggling actors in LA and then came up with and filmed The Room, which is objectively the worst movie ever created. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's oddly heartfelt when you watch the trailer, like you kind of get what the angle they're going for, like got to achieve your dreams no matter what they look like. But uh, I don't know, people are saying that if you watch, if you've watched The Room beforehand, Watching the Disaster Artist feels like a sequel, and if you haven't seen The Room, then it feels like a prequel, which is incredible. Uh, I highly recommend The Room to anyone. I, I've um, heard The Disaster Artist is very, very funny, even if you haven't seen The Room. You know, right. it sets up everything pretty well, and since a lot of the movie is about making the movie, you can easily get a sense for how terrible The Room is. <laughs> And it's all real. Like, all the shit that you see in the trailer, those are real scenes in the film. This is based off of Um, a book of the same name, which recounts the creation of The Room. Right. Uh, I don't know if it'll get any awards play. I mean, I sure hope it does, because it's getting rave reviews. Um, But I don't think it's a movie that Hollywood would actually, like, prop up. But, um, I don't know. I fucking, I, like, laugh so hard during the trailer. It's awesome. So those are some few movies. James Franco's accent is awesome in that. Yeah. Oh, it's spot on. Yeah. Um, those are a few movies I've been kind of out and about on the festival scape. Uh, I will come back with more updates. If I don't accidentally delete this one, then you're just going to have to get the <laughs> newest update when, when that happens. Um, but yeah, should I talk about the Coen brothers now? Uh, let's save that for the end. Uh, I want to end on a good note here, actually. Okay. Uh, so let, let me jump into uh, the movie that I watched this week. And we saw as it, everybody right? Kn- right, so everybody knows Pat. we're getting close to Halloween, and I was like, ooh, I'm going to get in that horror movie vibe, I'm going to go see it, 
and then I realized that I'm kind of a little bitch, and I can't sit through <laughs> a movie about a killer clown by myself, so I did not see it this week. Uh, instead, I went for the horror comedy genre route, and I saw a new film that premiered on Netflix this week called Little Evil, starring Adam Scott. And, Connie, we've talked about the horror comedy genre or the horror parody genre before on this podcast with uh, Tucker and Dale vs. Evil, I believe. Uh, and my question to you is, can you sit through horror comedy films like Cabin in the Woods, Tucker and Dale vs. Evil, uh, something like Little Evil, because uh, I know you can't stomach ho- straight-up horror films. Let's just put it this way. I can't stomach it enough to the point where, like, watching Get Out was the first horror movie that I volunteered to see. There you go. And Get Out is another and good that example. that wasn't even... But it wasn't, like, too scary, but that is sure. as far as I'll go. Sure. Uh, so what Little Evil is, is it's the story of Adam Scott. Uh, I don't remember his character's name because it's not incredibly important to the story, but Adam Scott's character marries... Uh, a, a woman who has a child, uh, he becomes this kid's stepdad, and he slowly, over the course of moving in with his new wife, realizes that his stepson is the Antichrist, uh, his stepson mm-hmm. begins to torment him, and uh, uh, the film kind of culminates with uh, Adam Scott learning to bond with his son or choosing to sacrifice him, uh, and that's what the, cho- the choice he's faced with uh, either rid the world of this antichrist child uh, and save humanity or bond with his stepson so it's inherently kind of a funny plot and there's some there's some good moments in this but this film just feels so cheaply made and uh, I don't know if you've ever watched an original movie on Netflix outside of some of their big productions like Beast of No Nation uh, you can kind of you probably have a sense for what this movie's production quality felt like uh, it's very quickly paced. There's not a lot of artistry that goes into the shots. The dialogue is funny, but forgettable. And uh, it features a slew of actors who everybody really enjoys, but uh, clearly, you know, probably didn't cost a whole ton to sign on to this project. It, it just feels like kind of a discount horror film. Um, and they do some clever stuff with using uh, horror tropes you know, to, to uh, write the jokes in this movie. You know, it's part of that horror co- comedy uh, convention. So, you know, they, they play on creepy noises and they play on, you know, uh, visual stuff that you'd see in horror films. Uh, they leave out jump scares for the most part. But, I don't know, I, I think it, it works as an entertaining film. It just doesn't really come across feeling like a complete movie for some reason. How did you come across this movie? Because I had never heard of it until you told me that you were going to watch it. Sure. I've actually been kind of excited about this one for a while. I had seen a trailer come out uh, maybe about a month back or something like that. And I'm a, I really enjoy Adam Scott. I think he's a really good comedic talent. And the premise sounded really funny to me. So I, I was pretty excited to watch it. And then it just kind of kind of fell a little bit flat for me, even though... It, you know, there's nothing really wrong with this movie. It just seems like it's meeting all the bare minimum requirements. Uh, yeah, I, I had seen a trailer for it, I think, online at some point, and that's how I heard about it. So, wh- like, if I if I were a horror fan 
and I knew that this movie was gonna like parody everything that I like about horror, would I still enjoy this film? Uh, I think they. I think even like hardcore horror fans would enjoy some aspects of it. Uh, that's the really. That's the reason I like this horror comedy genre and don't really enjoy horror films. Is I think horror films thrive a lot of the times on exploiting tropes that already exist, and they are too often rewarded for not being creative. It's basically like the more intense you can do a existing trope, the better your film will be received by horror fans. Whereas the horror comedy genre, they have to go out of their way to be clever about things and think about the writing, why these tropes are used in the way they're used. And I, I feel like it comes across as a little more conscious than most horror movies do, but it still has those conventions in there. It still has the things that horror fans will like, kind of packaged in along with this story about a stepdad bonding with his stepson. So uh, the supporting cast in this is really interesting. Chris Lee is in this. Uh, I'm trying to think of some of the other actors off the top of my head. I can't remember all of them, but uh, but there's plenty of good talent in this. Uh, there's, there's enough stuff where I think people would enjoy watching this movie. I just don't know that... I don't know. I feel like it could have been something a little more interesting. It, it, it had all the right pieces in place, and uh, I, the directing feels like Edgar Wright style sometimes because it, it's got like those quick cuts, you know, uh, of like close-ups of people's hands doing thing, kind of the real like whoosh, 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 sort of uh, sort of cutting going on, and then it it, it kind of has that same conscious parody that Edgar Wright does of existing conventions. But I don't know it. It doesn't work, and that was disappointing for me. I wanted to like this movie a lot. Uh, horror horror comedies that have done this type of film better, Cabin in the Woods comes to mind, Tucker and Dale vs. Evil come to mind, and both of those, I think, are available on Netflix still. Um, and they're both much better at the parody that this one sets out to try and do. Can I talk about why no one's heard, the, heard of this film before? Yeah, let's go into it a little bit, Connie, because I know I know you have some thoughts about Netflix, and I would oh, do love I have to use some this thoughts? as a segue for that? <laughs> okay, so I had mentioned previously in an episode, I'm sure, because I love watching romantic dramas, yada yada. I saw one called Tramps that was actually not a Netflix original, and Netflix had just bought it, um, so it, I guess it is their. It's not their originally, like, produced content, but they acquired it. Um, and uh, I had to really search to find this film because Netflix, in my opinion, is a data dump in which they just, like, drop off a bunch of movies so that niche viewers like you and my dad can view the stuff that they want and come back after every month and pay $10 so they can keep watching the content that Netflix keeps providing them. It's, like, calculated down to a science. And I understand that, you know, the appeal of putting your movie on Netflix or getting your movie bought by Netflix is that you get paid very well as a filmmaker. Um, almost, you know, double the amount of what studios would give you. But I think the difference is, like, I mean, when is the last time? I mean, Okja over the summer got a huge marketing push. You saw posters everywhere for this film. Um, but... I, I feel like there's not a lot of conversations surrounding any of the movies that Netflix puts money into. And maybe it's the fact that, like, they're challenging the convention that a movie needs to be talked about so long as it is watched, you know, by by very by viewers with very specific interests like you or my dad, you know, like, very targeted audiences. Um, basically, what I'm trying to say is, you know, this very well could have been 
Little Evil very well could have been, like, a studio film, but it isn't, and maybe that's on purpose, right? So when you're talking about, like, the low production value uh, and how it didn't really align with, like, the motive of the movie, that might be because it wasn't made with the intention to, like, break the box office, right? Mm -hmm. It was just made so, like, you, people that are interested in horror comedies, would stay for another month. Sure, and I... and. You know, that's probably part of their strategy when they set out to create movies like this. Uh, obviously, they don't want to sink, you know, huge amounts of money into any one film because that's probably not why people are staying to watch the movies. Um, that was smooth. But uh, I don't know. There's just something disappointing that... Because uh, they flex their muscles a couple times with movies. You know, again, I think about Beasts of No Nation as kind of... It was one of their first original films that they did, and it wound up still, I think, being their best. Uh, really high quality all across the board, really interesting story, shot really well, feels like it could be released in theaters. And then on the other hand, they'll release stuff that just feels like garbage and gets swept away. So, I don't know. Netflix is an interesting beast, and it's definitely changing the way that movie production is happening. Um, it's hard to say if it's for the better or the worse, but uh, one thing for sure is Netflix doesn't make their titles accessible to viewers. Uh, it's ridiculous how hard it is to find anything on Netflix because of their their whole interface is just recommended yes. things for you. You can't really even search by genre, uh, you know, or popularity or anything. Like I don't know. It's a uh, it's so messy, it's so easy to lose stuff in there. Uh, a good example of that is I was watching the new season of BoJack Horseman, which came out, and uh, which is an amazing TV show, by the way. I gotta plug BoJack Horseman for a second, because that is one of the few things that Netflix does that's very, very high quality. Uh, but I was watching the new season of it, and I knew it came out last Friday, so on Friday evening, I got on Netflix to, to pull up BoJack, and all over the front of their page, normally like when they have a new release, it's like, new on Netflix, BoJack Horseman, watch it now. BoJack Horseman wasn't anywhere on the front of my Netflix page. Uh, and, I, right. and I've and i watched every season of it up to this point. You know, Netflix knows I've seen this show. It wasn't recommended to me. It wasn't listed in trending on Netflix, new on Netflix, popular on Netflix. It wasn't in any of these categories. And I was like, if their own like created big brand show, BoJack Horseman, is not accessible on the front page of their website. This is a crazy amount of messiness they have going on. And uh, and if you think about that with, with such a big big brand that they have not being able to display that properly, what about all the small movies that they buy up and you know get produced? Those are just getting completely swept away and pushed off to to somebody who spends hours scrolling through the rom drom section or something like that. So yeah, who uh, does that? Yeah, who who would do that, Connie? Oh uh, my gosh. I don't know. It, it, it's a messy thing, but there's there's a lot of benefit to it and a lot of negative to it. And it's just kind of hard to say if it's a, a, a necessary evil or if it's a, a... Little evil. A little evil. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Do you regret not having seen It now that apparently is hailed as like the new kind of feel good? I mean, in a sense, like a whole, like a uh, family movie so that make sense because it has a lot of like familial themes and apparently right. it brings the whole family together with its depiction of childhood 
Here, here's the thing. Uh, like I said, I kind of touched on why I don't like horror films, and uh, I just don't think they really excel on creativity a lot of the time. Uh, it, I've heard, has uh, a nice little story going on, but what it does well is uh, horrifying images, and uh, I've heard it really thrives on jump scares throughout the movie, and... You know, I've read a couple reviews for it, and clearly people who love horror films came out in dro- droves to see this movie. I mean, the first yeah. horror movie of the, the year, it always seems like gets a crazy huge turnout, because there's a whole population of moviegoers who I guess just really love horror movies, and they probably don't see right. that, that many movies for the rest of the year. But when this first wave of horror films hit, which, whichever one comes out first with the best marketing is going to get a humongous box office draw and it kind of cornered that market uh not only with its marketing campaign but with its you know clown imagery people are dying to see that uh it's based on a a previous title that was successful so i don't know i it's not something i'm interested in whatsoever uh i'm glad that it's at least somewhat well made it sounds like but a well-made horror film in my mind, is not worth seeing any more than a poorly made Netflix film. So, I do not regret wow. not seeing it. No. Yeah. Damn. Harsh. Yeah. No, but I I'm just, with you. I, I, can't I, handle, I can't handle jump, jump scares. Well, and and part of it's, you know, the experience of watching the movie. I, I like, I love tension in my films. Uh, and I think I've talked to you before about manufactured drama versus, like, inherent drama. Uh, and kind mm-hmm. of my thoughts about that, um, where a manufactured drama is something the filmmakers put in to make you feel tense in a moment, where inherent drama is something that comes secondary to the storytelling. Uh, manufactured drama is jump scares mostly, along with unnecessary creepy imagery and music that just plays up a scene over the top. Uh, those things, when done well and part of the story, I think can be beneficial, but, uh, but horror films most of the time sacrifice storytelling and sacrifice the things that i think make movies great for things that will make people get their heart rate up or make people jump in their seats and some people love that experience and that's great if that's why you see movies more power to you but that's not why i see movies so i'm, I'm very uninterested in it that's fair but yeah. what you are interested in seeing um is anything that is related to the Coen Brothers. That's right. I am big Coen Brothers <clears throat> fans, and that's why this Suburbicon news is kind of sad to me. So when I was reading reviews about Suburbicon, uh, again, written by the Coen Brothers, not directed by them, Suburbicon coming off kind of poorly, I said, you know what? Connie needs to watch one of the lesser-known Coen Brother films. Connie, what did you watch this week? You made me watch Burn After Reading, which came out in 2008, so almost 10 years ago which is incredible because everyone in this film is still relevant today and ageless, <laughs> especially right. Clooney. Um, <laughs> it is, as you you very well know about the Coen brothers, it is a very tightly constructed farce. And I'm not using that genre, that label very lightly. It's literally, nope. a mo- the movie literally ends with you going, why did I just watch this movie? If there was no was point, point to anything that just happened, <laughs> um, right. which is always a great feeling to end your weekend on, just like what was the point of all that and of my life and of yeah. Anyway, um, well, and it, so it's something this that the Coen talks about. 
Oh, I was just going to say, it's something that the Coen brothers do frequently. You know, they love the uh, the farcical story. A lot of yes. their stories wind up at the exact same point where they started with no real change or resolution, but it's always a look at the journey that gets you there instead of the destination, and uh, Burn After Reading is maybe their most pronounced version of that. Right. Oh, yes. So apparently they wrote this at the same time as No Country for Old Men, and would just kind of go between both scripts. So you can kind of tell that, like, with this one, they really tried to pack in the lightheartedness, the um, futility, because No Country for Old Men is pretty heavy in, you know, everything that the characters do, and that has, like, an incredible cause and effect um, reaction. Whereas in this one, same kind of concept, but I would say that the consequences of everyone's actions were more just, like, really, uh, just, I guess, like, falsely constructed in a, in a certain way just to, like, make it funnier. Um, so Burn After Reading follows a couple separate storylines that ultimately interweave, as they do in a Coen Brothers movie. So John Malkovich plays this um, ex-top uh, uh, intelligence officer for the U.S. government, and he um, is in the middle of um, unknowingly uh, a separation from his wife, Tilda Swinton, who is sleeping with George Clooney, um, who is on the side also sleeping with Frances McDormand, who works at a gym with Brad Pitt, who plays this um, kind of vapid uh, self uh, centered, egotistical, just uh, airhead, um, and um, Frances McDormand's character uh, is wants to get a bunch of plastic surgeries, and so tries to blackmail John Malkovich's character when she finds a CD of his memoir that he's writing in the wake of his recent firing. So. I feel like I'm talking pretty cyclically right now, but that's the whole point, is that every everything comes back to everyone else. Um, and so, as you can tell, mayhem is, ensues. Um, everyone, you know, a, a good, strong character is strong because you can identify what their motivations are, and right from the bat, the Coen brothers make it very clear that everyone's motivations in this movie, um, they, it, it's, uh, it's, it's obvious, but it... It's also very pointless. Like, why do I give a fuck? I'm literally watching this movie with Frances McDormand trying to screw people over for money so she can get a bunch of plastic surgeries. Brad Pitt is just this um, brainless... Uh, uh, yeah, I guess he's just like a brainless idiot um, who is just doing it for the thrill of, you know, helping her blackmail for the thrill of doing so. Um John Malkovich wants to write a memoir and reclaim his legacy. Um, uh, George Clooney doesn't really know what he wants in life. He's kind of a womanizer. Tilda Swinton is a very hard-edged lover of his. Um, the movie wraps up very neatly in the last ten minutes, in which like the body <laughs> count ups by like three times, uh, just randomly, and and you're kind of just and, and you know J.K. Simmons comes in for a really nice cameo, and he kind of acts as the viewer's uh, narrative and kind of narrates, you know, re recaps everything that just happened. And it's like, whoa, 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 wait. So why did all of this just happen? And like literally the movie cuts right there. <laughs> um, 
And so I, when I was watching this, I was like, yup, Tyler would love to enjoy this. Yup, Tyler would definitely have <laughs> laughed really hard at that part. Um, I don't know if it was just, like, the mood that I was in, but I wasn't expecting to, wa- ha- to you know, be watching such a tightly written farce. Um, if you're not a fan of these pointless comedies, you're not going mean, to, you know, I mean, obviously, if you're not a fan of farce, you're not going to like Coen Brothers, but um, as you said earlier, like, this is their more, most pronounced um, film that, you know, um, that explores this, this genre. Um, I don't know if this is my favorite Coen Brothers film. I mean, I kind of got towards the middle that I was about to watch. I was, like, in the middle of watching something that, like, you could see and just never talk about ever again. Hence the title burn after reading because you don't need to talk about it again. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I would definitely, I mean, like I'm glad I watched it because I understand how masterful the Coen brothers are at writing, but would I recommend this to anyone? Not unless they had two hours to kill an hour and a half to kill. Sure. Sure. And uh, this isn't my favorite Coen brothers movie by a long shot either. I mean, I think a lot of their other work is, uh, a lot more nuanced and a lot more innovative. This one is probably just, for me, it's emblematic of what they do so well in comedy. And you've touched on all the points there for for why this movie works and why this movie uh, is representative of what they do. Uh, they just, we in a lot of their other films, they weave in this farcical comedy into a more dramatic storyline and, and have a little bit better storytelling around it. Uh, this one's just so over-the-top ridiculous that I always get a kick out of watching it. Uh, the, the performances in this are really, really enjoyable from everybody. Like you said, they're all relevant actors still. They're all very uh, successful actors still, actually, you know, uh, kind of at the forefront of film. But, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I just really enjoy this one, and I feel like anybody who watches the serious side of Coen Brothers' movie, No Country for Old Men uh, particularly, should watch this one to kind of see how they separated them out while they were making these movies. You know, it's really easy to tell that all of their comedy and joy went into one film while all of their grit and drama went into the other. And I think that's really interesting to see how those two products were distilled separate from each other while being written at the same time. So, uh, yeah, I I like this movie. I I think it's an enjoyable use of a a couple hours, but it's not going to give you any big pictures about humanity and it's not gonna you know really change the way you view filmmaking it's just kind of an enjoyable movie and uh tightly written smartly written and that's one of my favorite things to see in a movie is a a script that knows what it's doing from the get-go and delivers it the entire way through can i just add one more thing yeah um so Clooney, George Clooney was supposed to play this like bumbling fuck up of a human who you know mixes up his affairs and all that um I didn't really buy it because I think he's just too fucking suave I, as a person. It's true, yeah. <laughs> right? Like, I, I he was supposed to be playing this, like, um, kind of helpless, hapless uh, man-child, but the entire time I was like, ooh, like... <laughs> George you Clooney. You still got it. You the still o- got it, buddy. The only time I've bought George Clooney as a bumbling man-child is in the Coen Brothers' Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And um, Okay, which I have not seen. What? Why? What? Why didn't you watch that one? Why didn't you tell me that? All right. Well, I don't want to make you watch just Coen Brothers movies all the time. But Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? I'm at will. I have to watch whatever you make me watch. Oh Brother, Where Art Thou is my favorite Coen Brothers movie. That is their. That I think that's their best one. 
Uh, anyways, we'll talk about that some other time. Uh, but George Clooney is phenomenal in that as a bumbling man-child. Uh, you're right. In this one, it doesn't work quite as well. But Brad Pitt's bumbling idiot is very, very successful in Burn After Reading. One of my favorite Brad Pitt performances ever. He's just so ridiculous to watch in this one. Yeah. With the way he smacks his gun. <laughs> like, it's unforgettable. He's just got mannerisms that he's clearly created for this idiotic character. And I don't know. It all, it all works for me. I enjoy this movie. Uh, I'm glad you got a chance to watch it because uh, it, it really kind of highlights at the same time what the Coen brothers are good at and what they can get too caught up in and kind of bog their movies down in uh, just because it's so much of the Coen brothers in this one. Yeah, it's a very Tyler movie for sure. It is. It's goofy. It's uh, it's quick paced. You know, it, it's something that I can enjoy watching. No complaints for me. So, Little Evil, would not recommend. Would not Burn recommend. After Reading. Burn After Reading, I guess, yeah, I would recommend if you had time to kill or you're a Coen Brothers fan or if you really like farce. As long as you know what you're getting into with Burn After Reading. It right. was It was not well critically uh, received, mostly because I think a lot of people had come to expect more dramatic movies from the Coen Brothers, and uh, this one was a little bit more over the top than people were used to. They didn't really know what they yeah. were getting into. And a lot of people feel betrayed when movies uh, have this farcical structure where they wind up at the same point and nothing really matters. Um, that's what a lot of critics of The Big Lebowski say is wrong with that movie, too. <laughs> uh, no. Yeah, I guess people yeah, people don't like being told that what they just did for the past hour and a half is a waste of time. Right, and it's it's really kind of taunting for a filmmaker to say at the end of their movie is, well, none of that mattered, did it? So Right, uh, right, you literally. Know, a, lot, a lot of movies want to leave you with something at the end, and the Coen brothers have time and time again said, we don't really care about that, here's an interesting story. And uh, you know what? I like it, I think it's different, and uh, I'll continue to watch their movies. I, I've enjoyed basically everything they've ever done, so. All right. Yep, that's anything it. Anything else for this week? Well, I know I know we didn't go to the movies to see anything this week. Uh, we kind of copped out on that. But we'll be back in theaters next week uh, watching new films. Yeah, we will. Uh, it will not be reviewed. So if any of you listeners have a review for it, feel free to post it on our page. Uh, whether it's a text, video, or audio post, we're happy to, uh, to promote your thoughts about it since we're not going to be courageous enough to go to the theaters oh, and no. watch it so <laughs> and nor will we see any other horror films this season so now if there's a thriller i can do a thriller i can even go so right. far to do it like a psychological thriller you know I'll, I'll take some tension in my movie i just don't want to see a horror film yeah agree don't so, give me that shit yeah. so that's where we're at fuck horror films fuck netflix boom couch crusaded <laughs> <laughs> I like that. We're going to put it on a shirt. You heard it right here. <laughs> if this episode ever makes it out. Well, we'll find out, won't we? We'll see. We'll see <laughs> when I go to edit it, if I have half of the podcast this time. So, <laughs> All right. Until next week, I'm Tyler. I'm Connie. And we're the Couch Crusaders. Goodbye. So goodbye. Bye. Okay. So I screwed up last week. Okay, 
So I screwed up last week. Okay. So I screwed up last week. <laughs>